Okay. The 10 best films of the year has uh, apparently Noah's flood happens again. Good job, God. You said you weren't going to do it, but you did it. Uh, we talked about this in my moments of the year. It was my number two moment because I said it was the perfect kill in a movie. Um, and this is, it stands as one of my favorite slasher films probably of all time. Now, um, it is Ty West's X. Mm. Um, Jesus Christ. The storming out there. <laughs> it's really intense. Um, no, I love the fact that the first 40 to 50 minutes of this movie are just about these group of people who actually grow really close to and, and care about most of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no death. There's no murder. There's a lot, a lot of sex and eventually some Fleetwood Mac, which is a great scene. Mm-hmm. And then at the turn is, is then when we get a slasher movie. Um, yeah, it, it, it's what I always wanted from a slasher, which is like building up a care in your characters. I think besides RJ, who's kind of developed as kind of like the thin spined one of the group. Um, you care about everyone else. Uh, you know, you get that really solid Lorraine performance from Jenny Ortega, who's just fucking blown up this year. Mm-hmm. She was on my long, long list for uh, the fallout for a uh, lead actress. Oh. It's like her movie she did at the beginning of the year where she's like survivor mm-hmm. of a school shooting. Um, so you get all this build up for characters you care about for an hour until it becomes a horror movie. And then it just fully becomes just a slasher movie. Uh, it, it kind of hit all those check marks I wanted in a movie of this genre. Um, I kind of watched this besides kind of like it's few cheeky moments where it says like, Oh, this is really would make one fucked up horror movie. Like that part is stupid. Yeah. yeah. But beyond that, it was kind of, I think it's the slasher movie for slasher fans Mm. that like the scream sequels, scream five wanted to be. Like this was it. It was it was a movie that was cognizant, cognizant of the genre, but did the things in a cinematic way to bring something new to the genre. Well, even in like the early parts of the movie when they're not slashing anybody, um, it Which feels is the first it feels 50, like a slasher first, movie. It's the first fifteen minutes. Yeah. yeah, it feels like the setup for a slasher movie from the seventies. Right. But those things happen in twenty minutes, not fifty minutes. Right. And but it's those fifty minutes are very still very satisfying mm-hmm. and you're glad you had them when people start dying. You're just like, cool. I remember when people start dying in this movie, I kind of like sat there and go like, I kind of wish they didn't mm. like when the horror started, I was kind of like, I just kind of want to sit with like this porn crew of teenagers, 20 somethings. And you know, Martin Henderson being like the 40 year old, which is the appropriately cat. Like he's meant to be old. Older. What if Lee Pace was this guy in this one and Martin Henderson was in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? Better or worse? Lee Pace is really good at Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. I actually really enjoy Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. <laughs> it just doesn't show up anywhere. Um, no, I, I, and that is like a testament to like how well it establishes its characters. That mm-hmm. like I would watch a movie about these dummies going to a farm and making a porn movie I'm the director's girlfriend suddenly deciding she wants to have sex with Kid Cudi because I listen to Guns Go Bang and I'm like, I also <laughs> probably would have sex with Kid Cudi. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it, it is the thing I want from Slasher mm-hmm. is, is characters that when they die, I'm like, well, besides Martin Henderson, and I think his character you want to have die 
and RJ's character, Owen Campbell, I think is his actor's name. Um, it just works. Who's like, the character that gets shot with a shotgun and like flies out the door? That's uh, that's Lorraine. That, that's uh, Jenny Ortega. Is that? I love that scene. Yeah, I love that. So you were talking about before about like how you like like the neck stabbing. Watching somebody get shot with a shotgun and just like just fly. Well, because because it's established. It um, her name it's not Pearl, but it, Mia Goff's character at that point, Maxine. Sorry, Maxine's yeah. character is like an establishes like the. So it it does an interesting thing where like, Lorraine Jenna Ortega's character and like Ty West had this figured out, at the beginning of the year. We're like, I guess also we're really good purveyors of like figuring out who's becoming the big actors and actresses. We're so good, at it. we're good at everything. We're really good at that. Yeah. Um, but it does a good job of like setting up Jenna Ortega as like your final girl. Sure. And then she's like the one who runs out and gets fucking blasted. Love it. Because Maxine and Maxine, who's just like had this really hardcore sex scene in a barn is the logical one who's snorting cocaine. She's the one who makes it out in the end. Mm. And it's great. It it works. It, it is. You're not a slasher guy, but if you were a person who's into this genre, you would I think you would have found a real enjoyment. Sure, but I liked I. And so we, I know you liked talked, X, but I think you would have. Right, I would if, if it was my thing, then I would have enjoyed it more. I liked X more than Pearl because X is a lot of fun, where Pearl is kind of like a character study, and it's like there's no such thing as a slasher character study. Like, she which hit, I don't, I don't think Pearl is a slasher. I think Pearl is just a drama with horror kills. Well, in it. But that's, but like, it just doesn't. That's work. not a thing that exists, and like for a real, yeah. reason. I mean, her monologue is terrific. It just feels weird to follow it up with like, I'm going to stab you in the back with an axe a couple of times, and yeah, then I'm, I'm going to slow motion chop your head off and feed I'm it to an alligator. Very interested to see what happens with Maxine. I actually kind of can't wait. I'm like, I'm proud of them. I can't wait for Criterion to pick this up as a box set because they're clearly going to do it because it's really interesting. I think Maxine's coming out this year. Too. I'm actually really bummed that it didn't come out in 2022 because I think it was supposed to. I well, think no, they, they, were, they hadn't made it. I thought they had made it. I thought yeah. they were done. No, they made Pearl and X back to back. Right. But they needed money for uh, Maxine. Okay. I thought they had like established that like Maxine no, was Maxine, done. No, Maxine I think filmed... Like after, they got money. I mean, these both of these movies made money. But I think they it filmed after Pearl was done. That's so I sad. think it's like that's what they did, like the uh, show reel for Maxine, like a couple months after mm. Pearl launched. Yeah, me goth. She's good. Yeah, she's good. Uh, we'll probably talk Infinity, about her in a- fucking Infinity <laughs> Pool, man. <laughs> Woo! So excited. Um, my number ten is Blonde, um, directed by Andrew Dominic. It is an adaptation of the Joyce Carol Oates novel by the same name. It is a kind of loose interpretation of like what um, Joyce Carol Oates and subsequently Andrew Dominic thinks that Marilyn Monroe's life was like, based, rooted in fact, but with a lot of emotional and aesthetic liberties taken here. Um, this movie is pure chaos, like we said, mentioned before uh, in the last episode. Yeah, I like it quite a bit. It just doesn't it's, it didn't hit my top marks. Oh, it, it, so it, this movie... Wrecked me is a weird thing because most most of the time when movies wreck me, it's like an emotional thing, like in my heart. This movie, I was just like, I can't believe it. I fucking can't believe it. There's been a lot made of like, you know, the abortion scene from the perspective in the uterus. There's the JFK blowjob scene. Um, those scenes are awesome. And because this movie is not serious, this movie is not meant to be a 
accurate depiction of what Marilyn no. Monroe's life was like. It's meant to be throwing salt Terrifier 2 style into the wound of like did American. You watch Terrifier 2? I did not. Oh, okay. um, but you've told me about it. Okay. American culture's obsession with trying to control like the narrative of, of their stars. So even like in people talking about Blonde on podcasts, and the, I'm talking about the big picture specifically, they're just like, this is what I want from a movie about Marilyn Monroe. When in reality, Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe's life probably stunk. And she probably did go through, maybe not exactly what she went through. Maybe JFK didn't like force her to give him a blowjob while he was like having a conversation about the Cuban Missile Crisis. But she definitely had sex with the president. Is every moment of her life like the happiest moment of like the culture? Probably not. That stuff probably wasn't awesome. Being married to Joe DiMaggio probably sucked fucking ass. Being married to Arthur Miller probably wasn't as great as it seems like in this movie. Adrian Brody was number six on my list of best supporting actors. He was great as Arthur Miller in this. Um, but it was probably close. It's probably what they're trying to do in Blonde is say, like, this is as close as she got to normalcy. But she was addicted to drugs and was abused as a child. So she could never commit herself to normalcy. Yeah, the thing I like about this movie, like it doesn't show up on my list, but the thing I like about this movie is it feels like it's all these ideas are thrown into a dryer, yeah. or a washer, and just mangled together. And the things I feel like people say like they want to connect to that feel weird or off are the moments that like you could easily focus on the abortion scene or the blowjob scene. But I think it's just the overall tone of it. It's the same thing happened with like Killing Me Softly, which I don't think works at all, really. Um, well, we're, it's but, weird because Brad Pitt's responsible for a lot of garbage in New Orleans. <laughs> but Andrew Dominic's good at kind of like throwing everything into this mixer and having it not be a rope that gets you across yeah. a tree, but having it just mangle you. Well, so the- and and like this movie kind of feels mangled together this movie goes from which is what makes you feel uncomfortable it's not the scene but i want it's just the the experience yes because that's and that's what i want and that's what i loved about this movie so there's nothing better to me than bobby cannavale as joe dimaggio beating the fucking shit out of a naked marilyn monroe and then it's switching immediately to her auditioning for an arthur miller play arthur miller not believing what he's seeing taking her out to lunch and then Marilyn Monroe blowing his fucking mind to the point where he's crying with some analytical insight about like the play that she, he just wrote. No. You know what I mean? That's what this movie is in a nutshell is it goes from here to here. It goes from her whole life with Julianne Nicholson. Who's got to do other stuff. I love her. She's so good at everything. She is getting it pigeonholed as playing like the crazy lady and everything. Um, if she's not careful, She's great in this, but she's got to stop playing crazy ladies. Um, or in movies where, like, she's just kind of, like, not in control of herself. Um, from that to being dragged into an orphanage by her aunt directly into, like, an acting workshop. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's where the... And while that's happening, the aspect ratio has changed, like, six times. You know what I mean? Love it. I fucking love that shit. And this movie made me so uncomfortable. And, and I just... I can't... I, like... Honor to Armis, like, just doing stuff. I can't shake it. I, like, she's, like, in my head. She's, like, she is Marilyn well, Monroe like, in a way. She's, like, a charisma, like, 
Oh, I want to say vacuum. Oh my god, that sounds bad. But like a charisma. Mario, when they do the slow motion, firework. her doing like the white dress stuff with Bobby Cannavale just watching her, and you know that like something bad is going to happen to her after this. But she's like, she's the star, and but she's totally fucked up, and you have that like blissed out, like blissed out almost to like incoherence. Nick Cave, Warren Ellis score in the background. Yeah. Just like brightening everything that's happening, it's in slow motion. The aspect ratio is changing. It's looked at like from a bird's eye view. It's looked at from the side. It's looked at from all this other, you know, with all these like individual dots of light. That's, I mean, that is film. I mean, that's filmmaking in a lot of ways. You know, what I mean, that's why I. That's why I want. That's what I want my movies to do. I want them to convey ideas to me through film. My number nine is working on the same level. We. I won't like bog us down here because we just talked about it like a week and a half ago is All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, I'm Berger. surprised that's that low. Um, I just think it's, I think it's, uh, like I talked about before, I think it's uh, aspires to poetry. Um, I think it is about um, human suffering. I think it's about choice. I think it's about um, what it costs us to, as a, as a society, to kind of how we value people. Um I think that's a really interesting thing about about like the characters and that is that they he, they Edward Berger tries to establish them as people and then immediately pulls their like personhood away from the them. rug out and yeah. then they're just like soldiers. That's why I love like when that guy with the glasses dies so early in the movie is that they just try to be like he's been like in the emotional core and, then and they're just like he's fucking dead. Yeah, like he's they try to establish him as a guy like this is uh, this is who this guy is and this guy is going to war and they're like he's nobody he's gonna die in, like. Not even in a trench. He's gonna die in a in a hole inside of a trench, off screen. That guy's gonna see part yeah. of his leg, and that's and that and you know and then and Felix Kemmerer has to. The uh, entire scene is him crying. Like his one scene's him crying about not wanting to be. I there. love it. I love that movie so much. So yeah, nine is all quiet on the Western Front. Uh, my number nine uh, popped up early and it was in my most looked forward to movies of twenty twenty two. And was in my top half of the year. It is The Northman. Oh. Um, that you mentioned that one other time only. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, because I, I guess I overall have like a... Robert Eggers was like in my long list for directors. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have a fun time with this. I, I, I said it's unapologetically... I don't want to say masculine, but unapologetically so visceral mm-hmm. and of its time. Um, and this, this is the first time with Robert Eggers after The Witch and after Lighthouse where I was like on board with what he's doing because it's, it's very sexist Mo- from a modern perspective. It's very sexist. It's very masculine. Um, but it does so with like this not weird earnestness, but does so just fully committed to it because mm-hmm. everything about this movie is weird. Um, it is a very weird movie. The Amleth like entire story. Being there, being the origin for Hamlet story, just works. But it's intercut with all these beautiful vistas um, done by by Jaron Blansky, the um, Blasky, the uh, cinematographer, and it's incredibly well edited together. Like I said, with with Lois Ford, um, that everything connects together in this sinewy. That's the best way to say it. Yeah, it's a sinewy movie, mm-hmm. but it's very dirty. Very in the grime. When it's gory, it's 100% gory. Nobody's a hero. 
Nobody's good. Everything is of its time. And it just works so well. Yeah, there's no and villains every, either. There's yeah. no villains. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I, like when when if Nicole Kidman, who made who was in my top ten, yeah. supporting actress, uh, plays the queen when she explains why she she did what she did, you understand it. It's the best she's been in like twenty years. Yeah. To, to be honest with you, um, even beating out to die for people loved her to die for. I mean, I think she's. I was well, she nominated for um, fucking the hours. She was won she, for the hours. Oh, she won for the hours. Yeah, did she? Oh. And I'm the one person that thinks she deserved it. I think she's great in that movie. I think she's good in it. I just don't... I think she's better here, even. I think she's. this is the best she's been since the hours. But I don't think she's done anything really super interesting. I mean, she's been, no. like, in birth and, and stuff like that, which are interesting films, but I don't think she's been, like, no, but this fully is, committed this is, to something. Like it's, and that's the thing. Everyone here is fully committed, which, once again, makes me excited for Infinity uh, Pool. Is because Alexander Skarsgård definitely commits himself fully to everything he does. Well, he has. To, you know what I'm hoping for is that I'm hoping for a couple of things. I'm hoping for that, like, well, he fully commits Robert himself Eggers. has a body, and yes, Brandon Cronenberg is going to destroy that body. I don't know if you can say anything else, but like that is the perfect way to say that. Yes, Robert Eggers also like kind of destroyed that. Like he he looks like yeah, this is a very masculine movie. But in the end of the day, like, he's just muscle and bone. Like, he's nothing else. I, um... He is nothing but dope... Not dopamine. He's nothing but adrenaline and testosterone and muscle. Yeah. And this movie just breaks everything down to these parts. But that's where the best... ends on Iceland. Like, ends on this island that is just mossy green... And lava flows. It's brilliant. This movie is just it's like a lot. reducing people their component parts, and I, I fucking love Nude that term. Nude fighting in, a, in me, lava. Me and component parts, though. I think what the third episode was called component parts. One of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everything is just like reduced down to it. Yeah. It's great. I had fun with the Northman. Speaking of lava flows, hey. reducing people. Their parts. Give me it. Bring My it. My number eight is speaking of lava flows. Um, yeah, Saradosa's uh Fire of Love. Um I talked about the fact that like sometimes the manipulation of the material in a documentary works for me, but also doesn't work for me. Um, but it has to be punching at an equal level in this movie 100% does. It is um the story of Maurice uh, uh, and Katya. Katya, Katya Crafts, um, who were volcanologists who kind of fell in love. Um, and they kind of studied the red orange volcanoes first, and eventually, after Mount St. Helens, learned that the gray volcano, the volcano of the pyroclastic blast, was the one that really studied the deadly ones. Yeah. Um, it follows them from a young age when they first meet, and they're both interested in this kind of like explosiveness through to their deaths um, at the Mount Unza explosion in 1991. Um, yeah, this movie is, has a, a fire, uh, quote unquote, to it um, that works in so many ways. It, it's magnetic, it is 
alive. It is kinetic. And that's what works for me is the fact the thing that doesn't work for me, mm. and I'll mention this, is, is Miranda July's narration. It's so funny because we have like opposite yeah. viewpoints. Miranda July's narration feels dry and feels as though it has like a lull. It has like a podcast voice to her. It's Mar- totally Miranda July. Like it's what it is. It is Mar- it's Miranda July. But I just, I, I, I'm not shitting on Miranda July. I just don't feel like she's the voice for it. For like this film where you look at Katya standing against this exploding volcano, which is just spewing lava, mm-hmm. and you see a lava, like a gray lava flow next to her um, with like the red volcano early on. And you have Miranda July's kind of just kind of like lulling narration next to it. Makes me go like, oh, there's like a real desperate moment. Like there, there's a real separation here. Or where um, in, the, in the final moments where they're talking about the explosion, uh, the pyroclastic flow at Mount Un- Unzin, Unzin. Um, the one that ultimately kills them in Japan. And they have that great moment, that great shot uh, for the abandoned uh, journalist camera mm-hmm. of just the pyroclastic flow slowly coming towards it and Miranda July is kind of like narrating it in this very academic there's like too much of an academic experience with it's it very McSweeney's yeah no, for sure like goofy but also like super serious yeah um, that's the one thing that doesn't work for me but mm. the it, it's such a kinetic film beyond that that like connects that connects with me and like a lot of documentaries are kinetic um but this is this and City Hall and Free Solo exist on the same level for me because it's kinetic in a way where the creator, Sarah Doza versus um, Jimmy Chen? Jimmy, I can't remember his last name. I don't remember. The director of Free Solo yeah. and all, all those people are kind of like operating on the same level where they're kind of in tune with the subject. Um, it works. And when ultimately this kind of like thesis of the movie or the lead of this movie kind of comes back to like saying like, Oh, they died, you know, creating a warning system, uh, where it says like three weeks after their death, the explosion happens in where the country was off the top of my head. Um, like usually I'd say that's like dramatic exploitation, but because this movie has been so on the level, yeah. Um, it works. And like those shots sure. afterwards with like Mount St. Helens, like work, they're, they're shots I had never seen before as somebody like had been interested in like the Mount St. Helens like explosion. Mm-hmm. Like it, I appreciate documentaries when they work at a historical level where it's like something I've personally been interested in before but just hadn't seen. Yeah. Um, seeing the eight millimeter shot of Mount St. Helens exploding and being like the first really like a bombastic sort of, not, it's not bombastic because it's quiet, but being the first like explosive thing you've seen in the movie for, 10 to 15 minutes just works mm. on a level. It's so well edited, so well put together. Yeah. My, I don't have any like necessarily problems with it. My, I, I'll just like frame it like my problem with it is that um, there's a moment, that moment that you described when they kind of go from like the red lava flow to the, to the, to the, to the gray to volcano. The, to gray volcanoes. Um, the relationship becomes um, secondary. Oh, and I'm less interested. I don't give a shit about volcanoes, and I think they're they're interesting, and I'm sad that they died in a volcano. But it's not as it doesn't carry the same. 
it doesn't have the same energy as talking about how these two people fall in love in the context of like see and I, th- being I think next to volcanoes. I think, I think they respond to it well <clears throat> in the sense of so there's their their change from the volcano versus like the gray volcano the regular vol- the regular red volcano to the gray volcano works for me to counter that point is um we had Miranda July mention like the you know, the kilotons of the explosion, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Then she ends up with like the 56 or whatever number it was of deaths of human lives. And they realize like, these are the deadly volcanoes. And then it like about five minutes later, it cuts to them like walking across like one of those volcanoes. Sure. And Katya says like, you know, he's, you know, Maurice is walking there. If he dies, I want to die with him. And sometimes mm-hmm. I walk in front of him. Mm-hmm. And I feel as though it kind of like, it's a good, I agree with you because it like the movie at that point abandons like the relationship. It just focuses on them on as deadly, a unit, like the deadliness them of as a unit yeah. versus like it becoming a bigger than them sort of issue versus like kind of an interest. But I think it does it in an eloquent way. And I think it does too. Where, but I think the, the, I think the, the uh, appeal of this movie is the um, Framing device, and then when they abandon the framing device to just talk about volcanoes, I'm just like, I'm less interested. I don't think in it abandons the framing device. It, it, it kind of the the last time it really abandons. It's more like turns. Well, the right? last half hour is because abandoned would suggest like they 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 don't get divorced. They don't they don't they don't drop it. But it's but not. They, they definitely go like, okay, now this movie's about these people having like a united goal. So like the relationship. We can't really talk about relationship anymore because, like, we need to get to, like, their death. Well, it's because the relationship has become very kind of secondary because it's a little well, bit taken... It's, it's lasted so long that it's a little bit taken for granted. Well, the thing, it becomes no, no, a little bit thing, more the about, like... I, the thing I appreciate is I think it becomes, like, they become one-ish. Like, I think the but story... But they don't because... The story, I mean... Because remember, like, he yet. he is at that he's, point hunting... Fame a little bit. He's doing all those talk well, shows, shit. and he's spending and she's spending a lot of time like in the lab doing, doing like work and research and well, things yeah, like cause that. Because like, like you can't make it like obviously a narrative film would have done this better in the sense of like, but because like I don't know. I, I haven't f- read enough into it, but like Maurice, from the perspective of this movie, seems like a piece of shit who yeah. wanted to be famous, whereas she seemed like she was like, oh, I want people not to die. Like I would like my I, family to stay. How do I do this? Yeah, exactly. Because it feels like when they um, when they mention like the Alaska footage, it feels like she's the like the leading proponent of like we need to capture this footage to show to other people so the Columbia yeah. disaster doesn't yeah, yeah. happen again. Um, but there's only so much you can work around with that. There's, so that's the thing. So there's I there's a and I think the film does it eloquently enough. I enjoyed in, it in in the face of yeah. what probably happened. There's for me. There's like a four part. And I'm just like picking four arbitrarily. There's a four part, like maybe like four hour mini series where they're allowed to kind of dig into like the the context in each period of their life a little yeah. more. So it's not just kind of like this is all they're place here in, in Boston local government. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that documentary is so good. They're here and then they're here. I really want to do like an episode on that documentary at some point. That's a good one. No, but I no, I I agree. Um, but I also enjoy. I really I liked it, and I, I enjoy I them as people. I don't know if they're. I don't know if he's interesting enough to do that because I kind of got the feeling from this documentary, and just from this documentary, he 
fucking sucks. <laughs> well, they kind of tried, and that maybe that's my one of my problems too. Is that they kind of tried to frame it like with the stuff that he was doing that was more commercial was very necessary to fund what they were doing, but it also makes it seem like he wasn't paying any attention to what they were doing. He was just making movies and going on talk French talk shows. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, so it's hard to gauge what is. I don't want to say truth because it's, it's a subjective documentary, but like it's hard to gauge what's truth and what's not. Yeah, there is. That's there interesting. Is, there thing. is. There is in the end of the day, natural truth. Sure, but that's the interesting thing. But, but the, it's always going to be colored. By the Werner Herzog documentary is interesting. About them is interesting because it's about himself. What's the one called, by the way? Because I want to. I forget. Yeah. Um, but it, as every good they word, they don't even have um, Wikipedia pages, which I find interesting. Hmm. They had two documentaries about themselves. Um. All the best Werner Herzog documentaries are actually about himself. Just learning about whatever is the documentary is about. Like Grizzly Man is not about that guy. It's about Werner Herzog just listening to a guy get eaten. Which is why bears. the uh, best Werner Herzog documentary is uh, Avec Jack Reacher. <laughs> What's, what is that? Well, he's the bad man, Jack. Oh, is he? So I'm just imagining a movie where you made a documentary about him. The best <laughs> documentary of... By Werner Herzog is The Mandalorian season one. Um, the best documentary, Mario, about genius is 3,000 Years of Longing. You did it. I was waiting for 3,000 years 3,000 days of long days. On Earth. Um, directed by George Miller. Um, this is, I guess, kind of like a, it seems like it's an interstitial movie between Mad Maxes. Um, it got the shit beat out of it when it came out because everyone was like, this is not what we want. Um, it's exactly what I want. It is a movie that's about feelings. Is it not like kinetic? Is that why people it's don't just, like it? Nothing happens. It's just yeah. he's telling stories. So it's not kinetic. Right. So, yeah. um, it takes place in a hotel room and it takes place in a house. And then he, But he's flashing back to like how he got to this moment here in this bottle unleashed by Tilda Swinton's character and how that makes him feel. And then she's telling him, not telling him how she feels, and he's intuiting how she feels, um, which is lonely, which is alone, which is making the best out of what she can, um, she can out of a life that is kind of uh, defined by her loneliness, as is this genius, this Jins. Um, it is a movie that, like we talked about a little bit um you know, throughout this podcast that uses visual effects um, to a great extent. A lot of it takes place in like, you know, ancient times. He's a genie for, who was it? Catherine, the no, Catherine the Great. Egyptian queen. Cleopatra? No, not Cleopatra. I was looking at that. Seb. She, she, um, she married, she, um, Alexander the Great. Sheba. Sheba. You did it. Good work. Um, from there all the way to Tilda Swinton's character. Wait, didn't she marry King Solomon? Not Alexander King Solomon, yes. Alexander the Great. And that's, that's, did you watch this movie? I God. did. No, there's an Alexander <laughs> the Great thing. Um, I've been rewatching The Good Place, and there's a moment where. Brandon Savage? Character, it doesn't matter. Um, this movie's really beautiful. It's really, um, it's not about plot. It's not about story. It's not about developing character per se. It's just like, it's about a moment in this woman's life, in this person that she meets and what his story is and how 
their stories intersect not from a story standpoint, but from a, from an emotional standpoint, how he tries to adapt to that new life, how he fails, how she frees him and ultimately frees herself from a kind of uh, prison of uh, circumstance where she can't, she feels like because her husband left her and um, that she can't ever be happy again. And he kind of convinces her that happiness is not about like people, it's about experiences, it's about thoughts, it's about this kind of sensual experience of life. Very nine days in that context. Um, very, very good. Don't go into it thinking you're going to watch Mad Max Fury Road Part 2 or anything that has anything to do with or nine days. Mad Max movie. Or nine days. But it's closer to nine days. Um, but it's a it's a it's a it's a sensual feast. Well, that's kind of like a George Miller thing. It's like kind of like reduce well, not reduce, but like to do these movies where they're big and they're loud, and then do these movies that are quieter. Like he did fucking babe. Sure. And this is not babe, but it's He it's, did babe, right? Yeah. He did babe, he did happy feet. Mm-hmm. But know. it's close to babe. You know what I mean? It's it's got like this. You, you've used the word melancholy a bunch of times. It has this melancholy to it where the mechanics that tilts. He did not car- do Babe. He produced Babe. Who directed Babe? It was uh, an Australian Chris, guy. Chris Noonan. Okay. Yeah. He um wrote co-wrote Babe. Okay. I knew he didn't. It was like I, we knew he was idea. involved with Babe. It doesn't matter. Um, this is not a Babe podcast. <laughs> well, maybe it could be. Who knows? Um. James Cromwell, if you want to fund us, we'll make it a Babe podcast. <laughs> what if he does he? This is the one email. Yeah, we'll do Babe. I've been interested in doing Babe, I guess. Just for talk about my um, It is, it is, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. I recommend, I don't think a lot of people saw it. It's available on demand. It's very, very good. It is unassuming. It is definitely not what you think it is. It is Tilda Swinton doing her um, most Tilda Swinton. She's doing an accent for no reason. I think she's doing like a Liverpool accent for like, just cause, just cause why not? Um, Does she say cause? Cause, cause man, come on. Uh, my number six, or my number seven, my number seven, right? Yeah. Uh, Park Chan Wook's decision to leave. Um, I've said this a bunch of times to other people. I even said it to you. I'll say it again on the podcast officially. Um, Decision to leave is my, and I'm only saying this because of the year that we're in. If this movie came out last year or like next year where there was no Top Guns, I would not even mention it. This movie is like my Top Gun Maverick. It's kind of dumb. On the surface, it's goofy. It's really goofy. Like the first half of it is super goofy. There's a lot of jokes. Um, but it's We're also talking about like that's where I disconnect. Sure, but it's also kind of it's because of that and because of how complicated it is and because of how unsparing he is in his um, uh, demand that the viewer get on board with this or get the fuck off. Um, it was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. So this like decision to leave is probably like the most fun I've had watching a movie this year. Which is taken, which is not to say anything about like you want to know how it ends. 
And then when you figure out how it's going to end, you keep hoping that like, it's not going to end that way. And every step he takes on that beach over her drowning body, her suffocating body, you keep hoping he figures it out and pulls it as like that water kind of gurgles around and it like fills that space. You just keep wanting him to kind of like pull her out of that. You want the movie, which has been about desire and like deepest, most passionate love to kind of be fully realized finally. Um, and it never is, and that's fun too. Um, it's kind of got the best, um, like ending processing scene since seven, I think, where like someone's like figuring it out, but like he hasn't figured it all out. You know what I mean? He's yeah. like figured out the feeling of it, but he hasn't figured it all out. It's just a, it's just a shit ton of fun, um, and it's so we're we're like. 3,000 Years of Longing is kind of hard to recommend because if you're not into it, you're not going to be into it. I would recommend Decision to Leave to like anybody and just be like, give it an hour. Like, it's pretend it's a mini series on Netflix, give it an hour, and you will be rewarded with some of like the most intense drama that you can experience at the movies, like in this year. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's, it's exceptional, it's exceptionally made, as I expected it to be. You know what I mean? Park Chan Book doesn't make like bad movies, but like I think your your point is valid. When he is dra- when the main character is dragging a guy backwards up a mountain just to like see what the guy saw, like, but it's also supposed to be really heavy. It has like an artifice to it that's like nah. Yeah, especially um, compared to like when you're looking at stuff they did with his Vengeance trilogy or The Handmaiden. Yeah, like anything like that, um, which has an intensity to it. Like from the beginning, that this movie does, this, this, this have, movie has like a weird fun to it. That's yes, you don't expect, which makes it fun, but also makes it a little weird. That also, like, if you're not ready for it, will disconnect you. Very you're quickly. like, it's very easy to say watching this movie. What is this? Yeah, what is this movie supposed to be doing? Speaking of watching a movie and going, what is this movie doing? Um, I guess that works as a segue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> If you're not on the level of this movie, or you've watched your daughter audition for this movie quite a bit, um, my number seven is Matilda the Musical. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's the best movie ever made. I was not familiar with the musical in general mm-hmm. when I confronted this movie. Like, I didn't know any. I knew it was a musical. I just didn't know the musical at all. Um but everything about this film worked for me in all of its parts uh, on from both a standpoint of the musical itself and from the way it's presented. It's presented in a very easy way, I, I think. Um, Pretty classic. Yeah, very classic. And Revolting Children is is the, definitively the way to look at this movie and be like, oh, okay, this is the person, like, when you look at... Uh, Matthew Wartrus directing this like it's the easiest way to do it but I think it works because I think all of it feels not necessarily earned but it just feels you're dancing too fast <laughs> it feels it, I don't know it feels like warm and it feels sure like, oh it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's a warm comfortable winter movie um, that has like really poignant moments for me at least I think it's a um, movie that will become a classic 
like Netflix movie. Yeah. Like in the years going forward, I think it's going to it's be gonna one be of a, those, It's going to be a, it, it's a Christmas movie. But I think it's going to be one of those seminal kids movies. Yeah. Like you, I think it's going to be a seminal you're gonna kids watch movie, this movie. I think it's going to be like a big Christmas movie. Because mm. I think every, everyone in this is trying their best, like trying their hardest and like really earnest. Almost about too like hard. what they're doing. Almost too hard, but like in a way that feels in a way that feels almost not sympathetic. In a way that feels endearing. Mm. Right? Even Emma Thompson. You did not address the Emma Thompson when we talked about it last time. I, I like Emma Thompson. Did you like her? You like yeah. her? I think she's perfect. I think she's meeting everyone at where they are. Right. Um, She's being Alice, Alice Weir where she is. She's being Lashana Lynch where she is. Like everything is working. Everyone's kind of like at the same level. Like this movie's pretty hokey. Like it's one hundred percent hokey. When you look at the number of Bruce and the camera keeps Bruce. revolving, and the kids change from their uh, navy overcoats to like sequined overcoats. It's very hokey. But endearing, mm-hmm. and I think everything about this movie is not earnest, but it's endearing. It has this very eighth grade performance level to it. Nice, but it was it sure like a does. twenty million dollar budget, <laughs> um, or probably more than that. Uh, Thirty? No, it doesn't say budget. Um, but it does feel as though everyone's working on the same level. Yeah. And working to make it work. There's aspects of the movie I like a lot. And then there's, you know, other stuff. Yeah. But when we're talking about earnestness, my number six. Is an earnest? Is they making more earnest movies? Yeah, it's, it's Ernest Goes to Jail Part 2. No, when we're talking about the a, a movie that was made, I assume, for very little money. Because it's based on an internet phenomenon. Um, but it feels earnest. It feels earned. Um it feels very wholesome. It, its emotions are met at the ground. Uh, its script, its award-winning script, um, is met at, it, it meets the audience in the door. Um, it's Marcel the Shell with, with shoes, shoes on. Um, yeah, it's, this movie connects with you in a certain way where like you walk into it and I don't know. I was never a big fan of the internet, like the YouTube videos. Yeah. Like I felt they were just kind of weird and dumb. And I think when I first, I don't know if they were before she became an SNL person, but like when I watched them, she was already like, on SNL. Don't do that. I'm sorry. It's happening. <laughs> um, so I did not connect with the the videos originally, but this movie is doing what I think they originally intended to do to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they find a very simple premise of Marcel being alone with her Nana, Connie, um, and having lost her entire family. Her family, including pretzels and Cheetos. And, All sorts of little things. Yeah, pistachios, and just wanting to find her family at an Airbnb. Um, it's the dumbest premise ever, but it is so utterly honest in that premise. Oh, sure. So sincere. Um, and Jay Slate's performance and the screenplay never 
have this assumption of talking down to you. They always meet you at the same level um, that you connect with it at once. And in the end of the day, you kind of like find this movie about like the sense of longing and loneliness. Um, no matter who you surround yourself with, no matter where you kind of find your life, you do feel kind of like you can kind of find yourself feeling empty and lonely and needing to find something. Mm-hmm. And the fact this movie ends um, with Marcel by herself, by himself, um, like saying like, oh, you hear the wind blowing through my shell. Like it makes that whistling sound of like finally having that entire feeling of like, we spent the entire movie trying to find my family, but it ends with like this appreciation of the self. Mm-hmm. Like this is, that's what I find so beautiful about this movie is, is um, Connie has this like appreciation and beauty of the self through like her gardening. She just kind of does it. It's kind of her thing. She, she knows Marcel needs to find his thing. Um, it's not to the end. And like, but Marcel defines himself by like finding his family by looking out to the world outside. And it's not to the ending where everything kind of brought back her, his parents are back. Um, and brothers. And it's not until like, all that is centered that he kind of like appreciates, oh, sitting by myself and finding the beauty in it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's the thing about this movie is so beautifully, can, it's so beautifully defined by, and we talked about, I talked about this off the podcast about how like it feels as though there's some elements of um, Dean Fleischer Camp's and Jenny Slate's own divorce in there. Dean Fleischer Camp plays a character who's like recently divorced and Marcel, played by Jenny Slate, is like, oh, what happened here? Um, you know, this like entire thing of like defining yourself from another person versus defining yourself from yourself. Um, it's 11 below. <laughs> oh, after 11. <laughs> um, that That is beautiful for me in the sense that it is kind of like this, this synergy between like making your own world versus making the world um making the world of of unity making the world of like your your yeah. community but it it balances it so well well because it's a simple kids movie at the beginning of the movie i think she just she just is her community and then by the end of the new movie she appreciates her community but is herself exactly um there is a longing and a melancholy in the same way a little bit in my number six, which is um, Apples, directed by Christos Dico, I mentioned before, when our directors. Um, the premise is, as such, you know, is very Charlie Kaufman, I guess, in that um, that's what everyone's saying about it, is that um, the overall context is that there is a pandemic of amnesia, um, is that people all over Greece are forgetting who they are and where they came from and where they're going and what they're doing and their names and where they live. Um, and our main character, um, forgets that also, uh, he leaves one. He's, you know, when we see him in his apartment at the beginning of the movie, he's banging his head against the wall. He's sitting on a couch, um, just listening to music. He goes out on a bus one to get some flowers. Yeah. Yeah. He goes out on a bus one day uh, with some flowers, and we 
pick him up at night on the bus and the he hasn't gotten off and the driver asks him if he knows who he is or where he's going and he says he doesn't so he goes to a hospital where they specialize in this stuff and part of one of the things they specialize in is getting people um not their memories back but helping them live their lives without memories um which is establishing new memories it's kind, kind of, of like, like an eternal sunshine a little bit so the quickly norco thing quickly living quickly living um um all of an adult life from going to a strip club to having like relationships with women to flirting to riding a bike to you know diving from a really high diving board into a pool to getting in a car crash uh to dancing in a club to doing all this sorts of things um, you're supposed to take a picture of everything that you do to document it, to remember it. Um, this is your new life. You are now this person. You live at this apartment, which is not your old apartment. You see this movie. Um, you take a picture in front of the poster. Um, you're establishing yourself as a new human, even though you know that you already have, um, you've already lived a, a certain life. And But nobody in your family has been able to find you. Um, because you don't have any family, because your family is also suffering from the amnesia pandemic. Um, spoiler alert, our character, our main character, um, has lost somebody. He has not lost his memory. He has lost his wife. And he wants to start a new life, which doesn't include his wife. And so he kind of enrolls himself into this program, even though he, like, retains his memory of everything. Um... The difference between this movie and a Charlie Kaufman movie is wholly in its tone, between a Yorgos Lanthimos movie as well. This movie is, we just talked about Marcel the Shell with sincerity. This movie is wholly sincere. Um, it never um, descends into that Charlie Kaufman level of absurdity, even though the um, situation that um, Aris finds himself in is... Uh, absurd and surreal in a way, maybe even a little like uh, speculative fiction. It never reaches, there's no machines. You know what I mean? There's no like invention that Charlie Kaufman would, would do in like a thing. No. Um, it's just a thing that's happening. It's happened. It's reflected in its staging of like people getting out of their cars being like, I don't, where am I? Who am I? Where am I? You're driving a car. I don't know how to drive a car. Stuff like that. Um, Everything's done emotionally. Everything's done internally. We talked about the score earlier. The score, Aris kind of says like very little things in this movie. He's feeling things. He's trying to feel something different when he really enjoys, the, the title of this movie comes from apples. He eats a lot of apples. He loves apples. He stops eating apples in the, at like three quarters of the way through the movie because the guy who owns a grocery store where he buys his fruit from, as this new person says, like apples are really good for memory. And so he like stares at the guy and then he puts all his apples back and he gets a bag of oranges because apparently oranges are less good for memory. Um, Goddamn citrus. I love citrus. I love oranges. I'm going to go, I'm literally going to leave here. I'm going to drive home. I'm going to eat like four blood oranges and it's going to be great while I watch Superstore. Um, apples is a tremendous movie. I recommend everybody watch it. It is, um, it is quiet, 
in a way that a Charlie Kaufman movie would never be, or a Yorgos Lanthimos movie would never be. It is um, sincere and honest and full of empathy in a way that both of those directors would never be. And I love both of those directors like a lot. Charlie Kaufman's like, yeah, you know, one of my guys. Um, but he can't. He wouldn't make this movie. Um, this guy is not cynical about like what it means to be a person. He believes in the selfhood of. Um, People, their memories, their experiences, their value, where Charlie Kaufman's just kind of like, you could always just kill yourself. But at the end of every Charlie Kaufman movie, it's like, exactly. you know what's a possibility? Just fucking kill yourself. Then you don't have to do any of this. Um, my number five, I'm going to talk about like 10 seconds, then I'll kick it back to you. My number five is Phil Tippett's Mad God. It is this. It is a breath. We've talked about it a lot, like over the last like six months. It is this breathtaking stop motion animation film that he made over the course of thirty years that put him in a in a, in a mental institution briefly as he had a nervous breakdown. Fucking ate his fucking life up. Mad God is intense. Our friend of the podcast JP went to see it in theaters in at IF, the IFC Center um, with his kid, and he was like it. It like blew both of their minds. His kid's like an awesome like kid who loves movies. Yeah, um, blew their minds. It blew mine my my mind when I watched it. Um, it continues to blow my mind as I think about it. Um, as I feel like I don't want this to turn into a recommendation podcast. Mad God is definitely not for everybody. But if you are into stop motion animation, if you love Pinocchio, then your next step is Mad God. Yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean. Um, or just like narrative uh, movies that are narratively ambiguous. Yeah, but like are heartbreaking in a way when he, that when the second guy goes down. Yeah. After like the, that that moment of what's that director's name? I forget his name. Alex Cox. The Alex Cox scene when he's like, you know, dictating what's going to happen next. He's looking at his little machine or whatever, and the second guy goes down, and there's like a war being fought. Yeah. And he drives his that. Second guy in the hazmat suit drives his Jeep from like one end of the battlefield to the other. And the, the Dan will score going over that stuff is just kind of like, it's heartbreaking. Like he's not going to get anywhere. The last guy who tried this got ripped open and had his guts taken out for like 10 minutes. Carefully. Which was great. Carefully guys got taken out. Great. Uh, my number five, um, I assume we're going to get to in a moment here. So I'm gonna, just going to mention it and then we'll probably talk about after sun. Okay. Yep. Is it later on your list? Mm-hmm. So that's my number five. Um, we will talk about at length when Tom mentions it. Uh, my number four, um, I can only assume is not on your list. It is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this was uh, one of my top films in the halfway through the year list. Um, and just refer back to that. It's it's an affecting film. Um in many ways, it's a troubling movie. And I know you mentioned it's kind of like easy-ish at parts. Like the, some of the stuff it's... I don't mean that to be insulting. I no. just mean like from a filmmaking standpoint, the, they're suggesting easy things. But it... it to the right meant, person. It is meant to be easy. For sure. Because it's a timely movie, especially in America. Um, the world's on fire. Uh, I watched this, I think... The week after we Roe versus Wade yes, got we reversed, um, you just watch all this, and you and you think it's going to be this kind of like fixture in time of like, oh man, exploitative in the sense of like, this is what the world used to be, 
but but Florida exists. So yeah, it has a, you know, yeah. <laughs> Greg Abbott's a governor. So it has this like real presidents. Um but in the same level, and like we said with documentaries, it's not punching down. It looks at um Anne at the level she's at. It presents her like trying to figure a way out uh, of this world and trying to navigate it in multiple different levels. The yeah. entire movie is just she gets pregnant and tries to figure I, it out yeah, I know. in the right channels. And you spend an hour and a half of her trying to figure it out with like going to a doctor and the doctor saying like, go fuck yourself and like find God sort of thing. And eventually she has to like subvert that by going to a backdoor abortion clinic. Um, when a person is cold, but also we, like semi-sympathetic, but ultimately still cold uh, because it's just what she's dealing with every day. And you get that um, awful, terrible sequence of when she kind of expels the cancer in her body. Um, the parasite. If you don't want it, that's all it is. Because um, it's not a human. Um, well, that's the problem with the movie, right? Is that she? there's an opportunity where she's expelling mucus and they've decided, like, you cannot do that. And so as it goes along, she tries to hunt for this thing. She's expelling something totally different. Yeah, but it's still, like, not a functional. For sure, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you and me are on the same side of this. I'm just saying, like, from a... But it's still, it's presented in a way that's still traumatic to her because of the fact that, like, it's it's... It looks like a human being that's expelled into the toilet. And yeah. It's not. It's the parts of a human that would eventually possibly form. Um, but because of all the impetus and not impetus, all the all the um, walls that she's faced, all the, you know, mm-hmm. bridges she's kind of like had to jump. Um it ends in that and it, it's traumatic and, and um, Anna Maria uh, Bartolomeo does an amazing job of just connecting with that yeah. where she says like, I can't cut it and whatnot. And it's, it's emotionally affecting and um, it makes me want to put every single Republican in my two headed trivia list. Cause I hope all of them fucking die because of the fact that like, this is like the movie that like, of course you want to show people to be like, Hey, this is a thing. But they won't. They won't reach them because yeah. they're fucking cunts. And um, yeah, I will not edit that out. No, uh, your number four, my number four, lined up perfectly. I say cunts in the way of like you're a cunt, like Marco. Irish cunt. Yeah, uh, Marco cunt, Rubio. Um, take take cunt back. Um, my number four is Alice Diop Saint Omer, um, where a woman, um. Uh, Cooley has uh, a baby that she isn't prepared to have. Um, abortion was, doesn't seem like it was on the table as far as the story is concerned, but she was going through a lot and was not ready to be a mother, and she drowned her 15-month-old baby in a uh, the ocean off the coast of um, France. Um, this movie is interesting in a couple of ways. Um for me, it's interesting in the sense that it kicked Tar off of my list. Um, it did that for a couple of reasons, and I think the main one is because it kind of functions in the same way that I think Tar functions. 
It is hyper-literary. It is uh, layer upon layer of meta-textual. Um, Which is probably why I didn't connect with it, yeah. It, um, circumstance. Alice Diop is a documentary filmmaker, and she was at this trial in the same way that Rama, the fictional character who is meant to be um, the person looking into the mirror that Lawrence Cooley is in this, in that she's pregnant and she's got a career, thriving career, and she's not sure she's ready to have this baby um, for the exact same reason that uh, Lawrence Cooley is, does not want, did not want to have the baby or was not ready to have this baby. Um, so Alice Diop was at the, this is based off a true story. A lot of the court, uh, the scenes that take place in the courtroom are just verbatim things that were said in court during this trial. Um, she was convicted, um, obviously. Um, but the movie then becomes about itself in the sense that in the very beginning of the movie, the first scene of the movie is a very ambiguous scene where um, Slaji Melanjo plays Lawrence Cooley is just carrying a baby. That's it. You don't see her, anything yeah. happen to the baby. You just see her carrying this baby. The second scene is Rama, um, who I don't, I don't have the actress in front of me right now, is um, presenting a, a Marguerite Dora documentary um, about women in the 40s, I believe, um, who had their head shaved, um, forcibly had their head shaved in a specific context. And she's talking about the, the footage versus how Marguerite Dura presents the footage um, in a different context than the footage was originally taken, talks about the idea that like putting things in a different context changes their meaning. So Alice Diop, instead of making a documentary about this event, makes a fictional narrative about this event, placing it in a different context. And then in within the movie, there's the dual context of Rama have it like about to have a baby watching and like really suffering over the idea that she's going to have this baby. Like she won't tell her mother. She doesn't want to talk to her husband about it, even though like they like are having this baby. Um, and he knows about it. She, she doesn't want to talk about it. She leaves. She's like dismisses him when she like um, is at this trial. She like hangs up on him um, versus this woman who killed her child because this child is kind of like setting her back. Inserted within this is the internal metatextual narrative of the fact that the way that her much older, um, uh, the father of her baby, who is much older than her and white, Lawrence Cooley is black and from Senegal, um, has a different recollection of the situation than she does. He perceives her as jealous. She perceives him as a flirt as like trying to make her jealous, as punishing her. This is ultimately, I think, what Tar is meant to do and does ultimately successfully in a certain way. St. Omer brings emotion into this. It brings feeling into this. It brings characters who are grappling with the ramifications of not just their actions, but their thoughts. So this Lawrence Cooley, when she's on trial, she literally says in the very beginning of the trial, like, I'm here. She pleads not guilty because she says, like, the two years before 
um, her baby was born, and like when her baby was born, were the worst years of her life. So she thinks her circumstances are to blame for why she killed their child. Um, she brings something else. She brings something else to the to the table. She brings a different kind of emotion, a different kind of feeling to the table. It's not this expectation of of freedom. It's like an earned freedom that she thought she had earned, that she ultimately didn't earn, that this child is the manifestation of that unearned feeling. Um, it's, it's a really, it's an insanely interesting film. Uh, most of the court scenes are shot in like two or three cuts. Like just like a, just the one, like the woman standing. It's very static, yeah. But it's, it, it functions cinematically to me. Um, and um, it was very, very powerful. And um, kind of can't wait for it to come out on VOD so I could like dig into it some more. Like and give it the time it deserves. Because that's the problem with doing, the problem with doing what we do. You know what I mean? Is that like sometimes you just got to see a thing. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm bad at. I don't know how you are at that. Like I, I hate like churning through stuff. No, for sure. Um, I'd rather sit with it and live with it, and that's why. Like, well, the, that's why we're changing the theme of the podcast. After, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This and that's why, like, number my number three is the Banshees of Inisherin. I don't know where it is on your list. I'm not going to say much about it now. We'll talk about it in a second. I sat with that for a long time, yes. and I watched. I got to watch it again. Like I watched it in the theaters. I watched it on HBO Max. Talked about it with did my you, wife did you for a long time. Closer with it when you. I just I dude, you can't even get any closer to it. I just I mean we we talked about this when we first saw it. I just think it's just turned, a perfect yeah. movie. I think it's just beautiful. I think it's yeah. great. I think it succeeds on pretty much every level. Anything that it didn't get for me is only because like I liked things personally like a little bit more while acknowledging that like I'm pretty sure Banshees of Inisherin is the best movie that came out this year. Yeah. Like like just from a composition. From a narrative standpoint, from a tone, from a theme, from an acting, from a production, everything. Well, spoilers, it's my worst movie of the year. Yeah, my number three. Um, you just said it was movie. Jurassic World Dominion. Oh, yeah, sorry. Is that Jurassic wrong? World Dominion. <laughs> Moving on. My number two is, uh, no, but I, I don't know, in a similar vein, almost. It is the closest thing on my list that I could get to Jurassic oh, World Dominion. Okay. Is my number three is Dan Trackenberg's. Ray. What are you marking over here? I'm putting the list. Oh, you're you're writing it down. Yeah. Um, no, we we talked about this off podcast quite a bit. Uh, this is the movie. Um, position to say this, but it is from my personal opinion. Watching something like Wonder Woman, or watching something like the latest Black Panther, or watching Black Widow where it's like a woman in power and in control and like being an action hero. This is the first movie I watched where like it definitively feels honest with that. Um, maybe because it's just, uh, maybe because it's so similar to what Predator, the original Predator mm-hmm. was, right? Somebody completely out of their element. Uh, Marie Nuru, she wants to be a, a warrior and isn't good at it. Like she almost gets killed by a bear. And it's basically saved by the predator killing the bear. Um, but she learns, she adapts. And, and that's the thing about it is like, is this constant adaptation. Um, 
for 85% of the movie, we follow Naru while she learns and adapts and, and becomes, because uh, the, the biggest part of this movie is how much of the land she is, how much of the world mm. she is. Um, and that's what's interesting about this film, is I think, like, this movie is, and I will say this today, still better than the original Predator, because the original Predator is just like this, obviously this, like, meditation upon this toxic, not toxic masculinity, but, like, this idea of masculinity in the 80s. What Do you it think means, it is? It's, it's not toxic, but it's like, no, I think it is this idea of, like, masculine men are this, and, like, killing machine guns. Because, like, they, there's an entire sequence where, like, they're all shooting into the uh, jungle. Mm-hmm. Like with all the machine guns, sure. and I think I think John McTiernan is smart enough to realize what that is, because he was two years later smart enough to, do, or a year later smart enough to do that with uh, just Die Je- Hard. Jesse the Body being awesome. No, no, you know what I'm saying though. But it's like Die Hard with like a regular kind of man, not a super strong slice well, alone, a- and like Arnold Schwarzenegger type, but like well, that's uh, what I think the Predator, lanky sort of right. You know Bruce Willis being able to be the hero. The Predator is really is interesting because it's they literally took like the biggest guys they could find, and I mean like biggest in terms of like girth, and just made them. They're uh, just like so. They made them slasher victims, but they made them stands in stand-ins for the most powerful being in the universe. Yeah, and exactly. They made, they made them slasher victims. Right. Like when you look at basically Jesse the Body of Ventura, or. Um, not Winston Duke. Um, Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers, or I'm thinking of Duke somebody. can't remember his name off the top of my head. But they made them basically Tina from, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, where they're just like a bloodbath on the wall. Um, and this movie does a similar thing where, like, Naru is, like, technologically at a disadvantage. She's physically at a disadvantage. Um, she is captured by the, the French traders. Um, and... You know, the predator just runs through all of them. And she only gets through, through like the skin of her teeth, through the slyness and her, through her ability to kind of like adapt to the world around mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And it builds up, once again, like we talked about earlier on, in my top 10 moments of just that like great final fight scene because everything in this movie feels earned. And it's the same thing that yes. Dan Trachtenberg has done in his two movies now. Um, with 10 Cloverfield Lane, you know, predates the podcast, but 10 Cloverfield Lane would have easily probably been in my top 10 of that year. Um, with uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead kind of like being drugged down into that like bomb shelter by John Goodman's character with uh, John Gallagher Jr. after the alien attack, but everything that builds from that feels earned. Mm-hmm. Like Dan Trachtenberg is really good at creating this kind of very simple ethos and this very simple story and then building upon it, building upon it, building upon it to where the payoff feels um I think a grossier orgasmic yeah way. It's, it's 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 kind of like this big release it is it is a a setup and a payoff that you know is coming but you know what you're doing when you're stroking your dick <laughs> I'm trying well, to make, I'm, I'm just I'm just trying to say this as simple the as final fights the final fight scene functions perfectly yeah, and it's it, it weird functions. that like a movie that has already had like several fight but scenes you know, that you thought functioned perfectly would not only call up. back to like a moment earlier in the movie, but function perfectly in the context of that. But callback. there's there's something there's something that's smart about the way that Trachtenberg does this 
where like your first intera- his first interactions, the predator's first interactions with the world are against the snake and against the wolf, which we, as people of this earth, realize are relatively harmless beings. Mm-hmm. Like a wolf in a group is dangerous. Liam Neeson would tell you from the gray. He sure um, would. And, but a snake is probably not doing much, but like he just fucking obliterates both of them easily. Um, that establishes that he, and it's also like stepping down with his technology. Like it takes the shot of like him, like realizing what his world is and like choosing the technology he's going to do. Mm-hmm. So it establishes him early on as a villain, not in the sense of just being this, like the bad guy. Cause he's killing people, but the bad guy, because he has all the advantages. Mm-hmm. Um, so like it, it reduces like the coolness of him. It just makes him a fucking bro. Like the predator in this is like a bro, bro predator. Kind of though, right? Like it's just like well, a, yeah, because like he, a bro just like but comes that's, out, it's like but, oh, I'm gonna do. This. It's like we assume it's he like, is. It's his first hunt, basically. right? But he is not any different. The interesting thing about this about prey that he, the predator in this is not any different from the males in her tribe that or the French. Sure, but that don't take her seriously, and so they die. Yeah, that don't take anything seriously. And the the brilliant, the brilliant payoff to this, and that's why I call it like the orgasm of the film. It's gonna be this (laughs) next title of the episode (laughs) is the fact that like he, like she got him figured out. She makes him dump in, and he's like, "You stupid fucking idiot! I have my little thing." He shoots like he shoots the arrows at her. And it's not until like a second, like that, like I like this movie, but it wasn't until he suddenly goes like, he turned like the per, the predator turns to his side and goes like, his little head tone goes like, oh, I'm a fucking dummy. Fuck yeah, oh for sure, yeah. Of like, just the payoff of like her outsmarting him, of right? Like, and that's the entire thing. It's like the entire thing has been like, she's not stronger, she's not faster, slightly faster. <laughs> but she can like get into that position to like figure it out. And that's what made that movie for me. Yeah. Um, I, I think Prey is a great movie and I feel bad that his next movie is going to be terrible. What's his next movie? I have no idea, but I bet it's going to be awful. I don't know. He made, he made 10 Cloverfield Lane and that was pretty solid. Meh. I mean, he hasn't made a movie in, I think seven years. He made a couple of episodes of the boys. It's unfortunate. Um, but I think he's really selective. I don't think I don't think he did it. I don't I don't think he went from 10 Cloverfield Lane to not making anything because he didn't have a choice. I think he did it because he didn't want to do it. I think that's that could be true. Matt Reeves is making Batman movies now. And but his Batman movie was decent. It's great, but it's also he's just makes Batman movies now. And he's going to have to get... So the era where Ryan Johnson makes a Star Wars movie and then makes Knives Out and then gets $400 million from Netflix is over. So he's going to have to make some shit. Well, but for all we know, Dan Trackenberg might live a very simple life and be like, okay, I made like $800,000 probably off this movie. Mm -hmm. And now I'm good for like 10 years until somebody else gives me money to make what I want to do. Yeah, or else he's like in talks to making Fantastic Four movie now. Who knows? Who the fuck I am, knows? I am less, less. Um, I'm very cynical about like this, yeah. this 
this uh, experiment, the Hollywood experiment. Speaking of being pessimistic, um, my number two movie for most of this year was uh, my number one movie. Um, but at the end of the day, I kind of looked at everything. Looked at the production going in, looked at the work going in, and could not deny my number one. So my number two is uh, Jared Carmichael's On the Count of Three, which makes my number one very obvious. Um, On the Count of Three is definitively the movie that connected the most to me emotionally this year. Mm -hmm. Um, Never been in the same headspace as what this movie presents, but when I watched this movie early in the year where I didn't necessarily have a lot of things figured out after like a big change in my life um and i was spending a lot of weekends alone kind of by myself um and was just trying to watch like i think i watched this in came out in came out in may but i feel as i watched this in april um not through a period where i was like drinking definitely too much and whatnot um just definitively lonely and in a down spot in my life. Mm. Um, and I watched on a whim. I went grocery shopping on a Friday night, wanted to watch a movie, did not want to go to a theater. So I wanted to go home and eat whatever snacks I had bought and uh, watch this. And and so I watched this knowing like it came with like all the trigger kind of warning, which is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, Watch this, and it was it was nice in a way that, like, definitively it, it said to me I'm never in the mind space that this movie is in its mind space. Um, but it is such an interesting film in the way that it's, like, it is, at its heart, like a buddy comedy movie. Mm-hmm. It's about these two guys, Val and Kevin, having a day. Like, you could look at the... Can't look at the plot of this movie. You can look at this as like very similar to something like Dumb and Dumber, of just two bros just going through a bunch of misadventures. But it's it's definitely, you know, curtained and contained around this fact that like they've decided like Kevin has tried to kill himself, is in a mental, is basically in um a mental health institution, but is in has been institutionalized for several days following this attempt, and Val gets him out. Val has decided he also wants to die, um, and they decide they want to, they both want to kill themselves. Um, before they do that, before they're able to successfully do that, they say, let's make a day of this. Um, and it kind of follows this, like, kind of like slice of life, quotation marks, mm-hmm. experience between these two friends, um, trying to rectify the things they will do in the last day of their life. Um, things definitely veer often towards the melodramatic. Um, there's too many dirt bikes in this movie. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> a, little, a, little, a lot of dirt bikes. Um, I feel as though like the entire stuff with Kevin and like his like high school bully is a little on the nose. Um, that's kind of like knocked out Jared Carmichael from my director talk is like, I feel like a better director would have cut that out of the script. Mm. Like I feel that's a script thing that you cut out as a director. Um, but in the end of the day, this movie works for me because it is this really emotional 
honest depiction of two people kind of like who feel like they're in the similar parts of their life. But when you get to that final sequence, it's not, it, that's when you realize, and like the, 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 not the final sequence, but like the build up to the final sequence where you realize that Kevin has been sexually abused by Henry. Also brilliant casting of Henry Winkler. It's the first time as an actual like villain in the mm. movie. Um, has been, you know, sexually abused by his his childhood psychiat- psychiatrist. He's also dealt with a bunch of shit throughout his entire life. Um, and Val's kind of going through this thing that you realize, like, these two childhood friends are on vastly different levels. And I feel as though, narratively, that's an interesting thing because I f- it, it feels like a lot of movies that do this similar sort of buddy comedy thing try to do that. Like, try to build this level of these two friends are definitely 100% interconnected, but really they're on separate paths. Something like an easy one to say is like super bad mm. from 2007. Um, oh, they're, they're definitely on separate paths, and you get that entire sequence where they're on the escalator, but it doesn't feel real, mm-hmm. whereas this does, because like there's enough grown into the conversations be early on. Mm-hmm. There's enough grown into the way they carry themselves. Like, even though Val feels as though he wants to strangle himself in a bathroom, um, you know, Jared Carmichael's always kind of carrying himself with his shoulders tightly back. Yeah. Whereas Kevin is always hunched forward. Um, you know, all the things that Val does, you know, when they like, when he confronts his dad. Um, Jimmy's move. Jimmy's move. Uh, <laughs> like he's doing an action. He's the aggressor. Whereas everything Kevin's doing kind of feels either passive aggressive. In response to something. Yeah. Or in response to something. Or when he's come finally confronted by like the big thing. Uh, uh, JB Smoove sort of situation with Brenner. He kind of folds in on himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just like a brilliant form of filmmaking. I think that that's brilliant in the sense of like creating this like real fact of like watching in this position when I watched it. It was in that negative headspace, but I could imagine that sort of negative headspace of it being the final check mark of somebody who feels like, oh, I have somebody who understands me with Kevin. Mm-hmm. Um, but throughout that day, realizing you're in two different spots. And I think that movie very, I don't want to say eloquently because it doesn't, but a very ineloquently does it. Um, it's very rough in the way it does it, but it does it in a way that makes sense. And that's why it's, it's my number two. Yeah, I wonder if Ger- uh, Gerard Carmichael would go back and do just like something differently if this was... Um, if he had some stuff under his belt when he made it, because he's pretty green, yeah. Um, here, yeah. I think I think your point about like the script, I think, is really right. I think it, if he has more clout, like um, from an industry standpoint, does he cut some? Shit does out. he bring the, another scriptwriter in to kind of like do a pass over? Yeah, just to to take the dirt bikes out. I think it's like, a good, I think is, it's a good script. Like I nominated it, but I just think it's. I think the idea because it gets it gets to the point it needs to get to, but it does so in a way that feels at times 
um, theatrical versus well, earned, like versus lived. I always so. go back to the Tiffany Haddish scene in that movie where like he tries to give her money because she's pregnant with his baby, and that's kind of becomes the reason that like he wants to do this is that he's just kind of like not ready for the responsibility of not necessarily not ready for the responsibility responsibility of being a dad, but just like having to he feels grow up. And, yeah. Yeah. Where she's kind of just like, sh- fucking sh- do it. Yeah. Just shut up. And then you're just kind of like, Oh yeah. Like shut up. And then there's still like 30 minutes left of the movie. And just kind of like, there's no way this guy's going to kill himself because he didn't seem like he's going to kill himself before because he didn't like his job shoveling rocks. So like now he's not going to kill himself because like Tiffany Haddish just told him to because like, he's yeah, being should, a baby. Well, because well, I mean, that's the entire thing is like the Val story of wanting to kill himself is he has no reason to live. So that's what I mean. And is that, that like another another pass through from like n- definitely not Todd Fields uh, or Todd Field because the, this is like a different level of movie that he would touch. But there is like a script doctor, Charlie Kaufman. Because he would find a reason for like, this is why Val has to kill himself. This is why Val has to turn his like anus inside out and like, you know, run through a field naked and like step into a bear trap. And then like the helicopter comes down and like, you know, shoots a Gatling gun at. um, What a Craig, what a Craig Mazur script run through. Something, I don't know. What did Craig Craig Mazur do? Well, he's Chernobyl and uh, Last of Us. Who knows? Jesse Buckley would be in it. <laughs> and Pedro Pascal. Um, yeah, true. I think this this is like a this is like one of those movies that like when it first when the movie first starts, I remember talking about this when we did like our best of like the um midpoint halfway point. I was like, when this movie first started, I was just like, fuck yeah, awesome. And then they started doing buddy comedy stuff, and I was like, they're like robbing a convenience store and they're beating up JB Smooth for a thousand dollars. And like he think he legitimately think he's so good at his rock shoveling job that like the manager's gonna promote him to like an inside guy that he doesn't understand. Sometimes happens. I guess. But he doesn't understand that as like, a state employee, sometimes you're good enough sure, at that bottom level. But he's job. not like a state rock shoveler. Um that like a thousand dollars is not going to change his unborn child's life. Like yeah. he doesn't understand that. Like he clearly understands that he's just driving. Like well, that's, said, that's the a shoulders that's back a... thing is like the real thing. Like he clearly from a physiology standpoint understands that what he's doing is dumb. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing I, I kind of love about this movie because like of its rawness is like Val's thought of suicide is just very elementary i guess it's just very basic yes whereas like it isn't until like the finale you get with kevin where kevin's thought of like what suicide is is like oh okay well that's the thing and that's so and i would argue that like it's an unexplored metaphor for the end of the the uh, end I mean, of the Christopher movie is, doing like a lot of sure the, the end of the movie though is an unex is an un, uh, unearned unexplored metaphor in the sense that i think all those people chasing him down the down the dirt whatever into this ravine or whatever with a helicopter and all these cars is representative of the stuff that's been chasing Greg or Chris Abbott's character his entire life. Yeah, Kevin, yeah. Um or he feels like it's been chasing him. But I I'm putting that there. That's definitely not in the movie. 
You know what I mean? Like in the movie, they put the dirt bikes in the first couple of scenes in the movie to get us back to the dirt bikes. I mean, to get us to a chase scene. Yeah. Like his main thought is chase scene, not like big metaphor. But I think that's, I think ultimately emotionally that's right. And nobody is chasing Val. Like nobody cares about Val. Like he, this is a way to end this for, this is a way to end this for Kevin Val's just going to go to jail for a little bit. And then there's like another metatextual aspect of that. Like, like does Val didn't kill him? Does, I mean, I guess he did kill him, right? He shot, did he shoot Henry Winkler? He did shoot Henry Winkler. Yeah, he did. But yeah. no, the assumption is everyone thinks that Kevin did it. Right. I mean, that's the assumption we get from the way Kevin says, like, just pin it on me. And that Val is just like his accomplice, and that's why Val's probably going to be in prison for like five to ten years. Right. So there's like the, there's a little bit of like even though Val shoots him, thinking that Brenner, the Henry Winkler character, has a has he's has the gun, saying like you stupid fucking idiot, mm-hmm. and was like waving the gun, and Val thinks he's going to kill yeah. Kevin. I th- but I think Gerard Gerard Carmichael is so smart. I think if he remade the movie now, I think there'd like a lot of these choices would be different. Well, it's interesting because like I can only assume that your number two is also kind of a meditation on suicide in a lot of ways. My number two is a meditation on how good it tastes to eat a man. Is your number one after some really? It is. Oh Jesus. Okay. Um, surprising. <laughs> well, it's not surprising to me. Well, it's surprising to me. I thought for sure bones and all is your number um, one. No bones and all. I. <laughs> Deeply love, um, and I actually, it's one of those things where I'm going to carry my love of Bones and All with me for like a long time because I know that no one will agree with me. Um, I'm not going to find anyone in my near vicinity that has A, seen it, um, besides I, you. I don't. No, but like you don't, you're, you. I'll get other people to watch it. You and me are on the same page here. I'm talking about people that aren't on my page that are going to see other stuff that are 100% not going to see Bones at all. And they're not going to understand it. And I'm not even... I guess I, I understand it. Um, it is the single most sensual movie I've experienced this year. Um, it's scary and sexy, which is like a word I hate. But like Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet have like real fucking chemistry, like like legit chemistry. Like they belong with each other and they know it. And the movie kind of feeds off of that. But Mark Ryland's character feeds off of that too because Marin kind of belongs to everybody. Yeah. Um, there are no scenes in film this year that can compare to when Marin finally meets her mother. But there are also no victims in this movie year that compare to like Andre Holland's dad's character who just can't do it anymore, who's been dragging this secret and this terror and this shame around for like multiple states and like you know a decade and just is finished he's like just i'm leaving you you'll figure it out um and does she figure it out i have no idea i think that's one of the reasons i love this movie and i'm gonna kind of stop talking about it now because we kind of we've just talked about it at length um like pretty recently well it's kind of it's it's the suspiria thing it's like it's like it's you you're left once again going like does it? But Suspiria doesn't matter. The you idea know, that she does, she can. I how 
does it does it matter at all? How does it matter to her that she eats all of Lee? It clearly does. But how? And that's the question is that it this is the question that this movie leaves us with is that like you the viewer and this is why it's genius can never understand this mm. only we can understand only the people inside this movie that do this can understand how this works and a worse movie says well this is how eating people works and this is how we digest things and this is how we process this when this is why we have to do it this is where it came like a from razor needle through the well neck. it's like a hellraiser needle through the neck mixed with crimes of the future mixed with um you know trouble every day mixed with any oh, number trouble, trouble every day is kind of doing some bones and all but so. trouble every day is still like it's a virus and there's a cure you know what I mean? Yeah. They're in this. They're just kind of like, but like there's it's a, a thing we can. It's just a thing we do. But there's still like an ambiguity to the virus. Sure, but there's there's a non ambiguity in the sense that he eats someone out. Like the the true cannibalism from Vincent Gallo's character yeah. is like there's a woman in the locker room and he goes down on her and just starts chewing on her body. You know what I mean? Like it's but that's pure Claire Denis. Luca Guadagnino is just like. I'm going to make them eat people, but I'm also going to put an equally sensual moment sitting on a hill talking about eating people. That talking about it, the feeling it is going to be equally as important as the seeing it. It is going to be is going to hit you just as hard, and that's where this movie works so well. I don't get it. I don't get this Luca Guadagnino thing that he has over me, but I think it's great. I I like I'm so happy to like experience these movies. Suspiria was a good time. Suspiria is just fucking awesome. This is this digs into like my chest. Yeah, nobody has nobody has this, nobody has this thing over me. And the closer we get, because I want to talk about my number one before we talk about your number one, because I think it's please go. Your number one's a more interesting thing to finish on. Um, my number one is just the the perfect movie of the year. You could probably guess. What I think is. we've said it like a hundred times. That, that is that exact movie. Yeah, it's the, it's the Banshees of Inner Um Yeah, it. I don't know. It is uh, has a college kid. Um, in my sophomore year of college, I went to go see The Pillow Man. I talked yeah, about this yeah. on the podcast before, and just like my mind being blown by just like the words that were transposed onto the stage. Um, and in Bruges gets there in a lot of ways, but it still has this like rawness. Um, Seven Psychopaths is fun, but it doesn't necessarily get there because it's still very cinematic. It's trying to do a lot. It's trying to do a lot. Um, it's trying to do a lot, but it's, it's, it's super cinematic and super caustic is the best way of saying mm-hmm. it. Like it's, it's so acidic in the way it exists. Um, and three billboards just is a well done movie, but just did not. Cause like you said, it's too political did not connect with me, but Banshees is the first movie um, that I looked at. And I was like, this is the Mar McDonald of the stage that I saw has a 19 year old mm-hmm. put in the film. Who's also using the film um, medium to just make this perfect feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me excited. 
and elated to just see what this is because like I'm a dude who loves like we talked about this on the podcast before I tried to make a modern day Godot in college for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. I spent almost a thousand dollars, which was a lot of money for a 19 year old um, to make Godot Cause I was so in love with like that theater that they served with the, the Irish kind of dramatist and like Samuel Beckett stuff. And cause I was so obsessed with, what he did with Pillow Man mm-hmm. and to finally have that now on screen um, and in that perfect controlled way that I knew he had uh, worked for me because that's the thing that Mark McDonald has. He has he has a control over his voice but he also has a control when he needs it over the entirety of the production. Mm-hmm. Um, Which the first time it feels like he has control over the direction, the screenplay... I'll say that this movie feels, and this I'm just relating this to that specific this specific thing because it just happened. But like this movie feels very, um, and it won't make the sight and sound twenty thirty two list. No, I, no. But it feels like it's already on it. Like it feels eternal. It feels like. Do we think this possibly still wins picture? I think it's one of the three movies that's kind yeah. of that's up there. Hopefully. Um, like a split, like a so someone was arguing on a podcast that because of they're doing ranked balloting, that like nobody's gonna have this movie nine or ten, everyone's gonna have this movie two, like or, one, three. two or three. So it's probably so it's like sure. one of those things yeah. that it's kind of can like sneak, um, kind of sneak in there and grab something that like didn't didn't already have, or like didn't have like an ownership of up until that point. Um, it feels eternal. Like when you watch this movie, you feel like it was made in the seven. It could have been made in the seventies. Was made now or nineties or yeah. whatever. It's it, it like, like a Neil Jordan feel to it at times. I guess so, but more intelligent and less like angry. Well, I'm trying to say like what a director of that yeah. sort of background would have done, but also maybe someone that like isn't that never got here. Like you know, um, like someone that's like um, purely Irish. That's that was only like a, a like someone an Irish director that was directing like a Brian Friel like. Adaptation or something. He's an Irish playwright, okay. um, but he's he's like very Irish. He writes like very Irish things about like very Irish subjects. Um, this feels both universal in its themes, but also very specific in its context. And in that way, becomes kind of timeless. And the performance, the allegorical aspect of it, makes it even more timeless. You know what I mean? Like a folktale. And then, but the performance of it makes it fun, which makes it something you want to go back to. So it wouldn't surprise me if everything everywhere, it wouldn't surprise me if there's, this is a bad example in a way, but it also like is a good example in the sense that like everything everywhere all at once is of the moment and it wins best picture. But, but I feel like Seven is Sheeran is the movie that like 10 years later, people are writing big essays about. I feel as like this movie and something like everything everywhere all at once are telling like the same thing. To a, to a similar level, they are, but everything, everywhere, all at once has, I think, is will age, will age quickly. No, it will, but like they're. That's what I'm trying to say is like the way that people are responding right now to everything all at once about this like existential kind of like dread mm. and existential kind of like um, fatalism is mm. 
once again, also said in Banshees of Inertion, but it's told in a different way. Whereas, like, everything ever all once makes it into this big thing. Like, it makes it into this, like, big world cosmic thing. thing. Like, yeah. cosmic thing if you realize this. Banshees says, like, fucking welcome to the, you know, merry-go-round. Your man. donkey's going to die. Well, no, it, it, says, it says, like, everyone's dealt with this. Just like welcome to the party, but it well, it's it's, Pal. it's, it's yeah. <laughs> um, that's the thing I've always that's the thing I appreciate, kind of about uh, Martin McDonald is just the fact that it's just like you feel these big emotional things, but like <clears throat> ultimately everyone else does. Versus like something like the Daniels, um, and like the movie we're going to talk about in a second, kind of like says the same way of like everyone feels this same way um charlotte wells says it in a way of like we won't speak about it but mark mcdonald's like yeah we'll speak about it but like everyone deals with it versus like the daniels were like this is a big thing and it's like yeah it's a big thing if you're fucking 25 if you're doing if you're in this is like your experience or this is what you want your experience with yeah there's there's be. a very oh, no, i don't want to say self-centered but there's a very um narcissistic focus from everything ever all at oh, once. Oh, yeah. That isn't present in Banshees of Inner Shern. Um, and that's what makes, like, Wayman and um, Kihuan Khan, as I stick on my tongue, say, destroyed that name. But it makes his performance great and it makes, makes it centered is the fact that, like, he's the one who's just like, yeah, no shit, this is what it is. But you just try to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the problem with everything ever at once is like it says like no this is this cosmic thing versus like Banshees that says like kind of like everyone deals with this and it's like the way you deal with it or the movie we're going to talk about where it's just kind of like you ignore it well so I would argue that at least from my point of view yeah, like, I, so, like we'll, my, so my your number one is my number five but mm-hmm. I feel as though yeah, my number one is After Sun. Um, Charlotte Wells is my number one director. After Sun, when I first, when I watched it, I um, was like, yeah. That's it. Yep. That's the one. You got it, yep. Um, I want to speak a little bit about, I don't want it to go too long, um, but I want to speak a little too bit about late. the idea of like, <laughs> the eternal. We're not, we're not four hours. We're at 140 for this. Um, but that's, we're at the end, fine. so it's in. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the last movie. There's bullshit the, for three minutes, then we're out of here. There's the moment where they're in the mud, they're the pool. They're at like the hot springs mud pool thing. And they're in the mud and they're covering each other with mud and they're not talking. And then all of a sudden they are talking. And um, Sophie tells her dad that like this mud pool, um, Cleopatra, like came to this this place because they're at Turkey, by the way. I they're at Turkey, they're friends, yes. But I, they're at Turkey. But it's it's hard to tell because it's clearly, which I love, it's clearly a place in Turkey where British people go and on French vacation. people because there's some French yeah. language happening there. Um, I love that about like Europe. It's, it, it, she's is she speaking French in the bus? I thought she was like they. I thought she was speaking French. I don't think so. But she might be speaking Turkish. Maybe. Um. They're explaining that Cleopatra came here and they're covering themselves in this kind of like ancient mud. It's this idea of remembering something. So the the idea of Cleopatra in and of itself. Which is great because the mud itself is just like a slightly like lighter color than their own skin. Sure. 
But that directly relates to these rugs. He buys a rug. They go to this rug store, and he's like, all these designs mean something. It carries thereabouts. The people that made them have stories. These rugs are telling a story. There's a story. What's the story? Essentially, there's that great scene, which almost made my moments less, where he goes back. He is just sitting on the rugs. He lays down. He's sitting on the rugs, and then he... Some guy comes back, he's like, oh, here's your rug, here's your receipt for the rug, and then he unrolls the rug and he like lays down on the rug. Like he's trying to absorb this story, these memories into himself. He's rubbing the mud on himself. You know what I mean? Absorbing this history into his yeah, into his body. Yeah, I know. I, I remember just really quickly, not Yeah, yeah, no, go. I remember when that scene happened, I thought like he was like kind of squatting in, in back in the rug store. Mm-hmm. And so he's just kind of like laying down there, um, and the guy comes back and like, "Here's your receipt." I'm like, "Oh, this is more. It's more, and that's more intense than I expected." And this is because this entire movie is just like for me building dread for sure. But like the building is very literary, so there's a Ooh, there's a direct okay. relationship to me to After Sun Saint Omer and Tar. Um, so in a different way, in a different world, Tar like stays on my list. But Tar is emotionless, so it doesn't make my list. And all I want is emotions. After some uses, like, novelistic um, uh, tools to express something um, uh, cinematically. It creates motifs. It drops themes here and there. And then it rounds those off with, like, an emotional component, a story component. Um, so you have the very obvious things where with like the dancing and the Tai Chi, that's Tai Chi is a substitute for dancing um, until the end where I think ultimately this movie is about the last time she saw her dad. Yeah, absolutely. That's and the last time it. she saw her dad, she was wearing this thing. And in her mind, her dad literally went from dropping her off at the airport to an eternal dance club where he could do the thing that he's always wanted to do the only thing he ever wanted to do, which was dance. And like what dancing is or means or whatever, um, she was a kid. And the thing that he expressed that he loved to do was dance. And the thing that she saw him do was dance. You know what I mean? And he was, you know, the Tai Chi was an attempt to kind of like become an adult. It was It was adulting in a way. Charlotte Wilson's dropping all these, dropping all these things. The eternal in this is fixed in Sophie's mind, where I think in Benches of Inishirin, it's fixed in Irish history. Whereas like this story has nothing to do with Irish history. You know what I mean? In the sense that like it's not real. Yeah. Um, it's not like a metaphor for like some kind of legend of something that happened although it plays like that the best thing the thing i like most about um for son is that like sophie's gonna have to pass this story along to her child if she chooses to if she doesn't this her dad is done her dad is over and forgotten and finished forever um which adds upon like the conclusion of the movie adds this kind of weight so most movies, I think, the weight kind of comes off. You know what I mean? And it's very The Whale, where, like, at the end, he, like, can stand and he floats, and it's just like... <laughs> um, 
Good work, Darren Aronofsky. You, good fucking job. Um, this movie adds weight as it ends. Yeah, and no. I think it's I I I can't remember another movie that like as the movie ended was like I'm going to add another layer of like of emotional emotional like grist for like the psychological mill for you to turn over when you leave. This is. Uh, and this is the In movie, its last moment, sorry. And that's, that's why I wanted to, like, to finish on this movie. Because this is a movie that, like, it's my number five. Uh, five. Um, but I look at it and go, like, it's going to probably go up on my list. Because the only thing I felt in the end is, like, frustration. Because he's dead. He's killed himself. He's done he's he's he, done something. He's, in the he's, eyes he's, of Sophie. He's gone, he's, he's, in the eyes of Sophie, he doesn't exist anymore. He doesn't exist, yeah. And you know something's up. And you don't know what that is because the dancing but, is so abstract. It's so abstract, but you don't know what you don't mm-hmm. know why he has that melancholy. Mm-hmm. You don't know why he's sad. I remember talking with Andy about this, and Andy was just like, "Oh, because he's a young dad." And I'm like, "That's not it." Well, so he loves I mean, being a dad, but he also wants to be the guy on the boat. No, but sure. he doesn't know how to do it. For sure, but that's not like, that's not what fucking devastates this man. That's not what makes him like sit on the side of his bed crying. No. And the fact that this movie never tells you why is so infuriating, but so like. But the reason he's. But devast- like the reason why it worked so well is because it's so. Doesn't give a shit about you wanting. Ants. It, does, it doesn't give a shit about you wanting focus. No, I think the reason he's devastated is because state. he doesn't know why he's devastated. Yeah, no, exactly. And he and he But you as an audience member, you as a viewer are also fucked up because why is he devastated? But he doesn't know why he's devastated. And it's like, no, you're a movie. You, you need tell to tell us. me why he's devastated yeah. right now. He's eating a lot of pizzas because his gay lover's dead, right? Did you like hate eating the pizza? No, I think it's stupid. Yeah. It did but, not do the same thing as as the haiku did. But no, no, no. Like, like looking on the count of three, like the fact that um, Kevin was, you know, molested by his psychiatrist. Yeah. Like there's, there's an endpoint. There is no goddamn endpoint to mm-hmm. any of the melancholy feeling about this. And that's kind of like how, I mean, at one point in my life, I felt melancholy. I don't anymore. But like when I felt depressed, um, there was no like, there was kind of like some endpoints, but like there was no real endpoint. There was just kind of like this general sense of malaise mm-hmm. and like this is how this movie works. It's just like it there is nothing. It's just it's there. And right. especially from the perspective of a child, just going like, How do I fix this? Or how can I look back? You know, like when Sophie's an adult and fix this and I can't. It just is just frustration and anger. And it works so perfectly because it is so real. Yeah, I think the best part of, of the movie is, and I talked about this when I did like the cinematography thing, is that like the movie doesn't have a lot of the movie has stress when it's supposed to have stress, and those moments when they're like laying together in chairs is stress free until someone gets up. And it's clear that Sophie is choosing not choosing she remembers this as a good moment and it's sad in its 
context and in its um, contents, her memory. But it's also it's also good and positive, and she liked it, and she learned some stuff about herself. She was got close to her dad. She was afraid for him, and um, didn't understand him. But like, there at no point, like when you're watching the movie, is she just kind of like, I regret that this happened to me. No, for sure, and like, and that adds like I think uh, that adds more weight to it. I think that like it's not a th- it, the movie's not about regret. The movie's just kind of about the movie. The movie's just about memory, memory, and processing and to figure, a moment. Figure things out because like that that thing that's beautiful about that like that final kind of nightclub moment is it it's her fighting basically him. And like trying, you get the sense of her adult self trying to figure out like what, why, what was what was that weekend about? How do is there and why did I you can, do? Why did you do what we can only? And how can I not? And how can I not do that? How can I not be in this situation also as a parent? Like I'm also a parent. She, is she a parent? Yeah, they just had a baby. Oh, I didn't. I didn't get that. Um, that. how do I? How do I not do that? And that's like the Saint Omer thing as well. I mean, it's all the, the that stuff is tied together, like thematically, not necessarily in my appreciation of them. It just like so happens, like that's the thing. But like, um, this was a good, this was a good moment that ultimately can only have ended badly because I never saw this guy again. What can I take from here? where can I go as like a person who's, you know, trying to establish themselves as an adult um, that will be different from what you did. And he's just dancing and she's just trying to hug him and get like her arms around him and figure this out. She can't because it's not real anymore. Um, And that's what I I just, just, I find it so fascinating. The same thing that I find interesting about like all this movie is just how, fucking cagey is throughout all, all of it. Where he says, like, you, why do you and mom say you love each other? He's still like, oh, we just say it because that's how... You know, it's a fair response, but we say about somebody with their family, but it's like this caginess to him. And the fact that, like, the script never allows its guard to be get down and Paul Mescal's performance never allows his guard to be down is just so fucking brilliant. But he also doesn't know how to tell his daughter, and probably rightly so, that like he does love this woman. But he's also a fucking. But kid. you're, and she's probably also a kid too. Yeah, like the, obviously, if I watched this fifteen years ago, I'd have been like, "What's going on?" Blah blah blah. But like, watch this now. Ten years older than they're supposed to be. You're fourteen years older than those people are supposed to be. You're just like, oh, I fucking get it. Like if I was in that position. Well, yeah, like, I wouldn't know how to, like, deal with it, so I just would have said the first thing that popped in my head. Well, that's me and my wife were watching this movie, and we were just, like, imagining our own 12-year-old in this situation. And we are just like, what would she do? And we are just like, not this. Like, you know, she's not doing any of these things. And you were that... each other because you're happily married. You're I guess like, so. But, like, how does that High make... Five. But, like, I also, like... And so that's why I had to watch it a couple of times, because I never want to define a movie by, like, my personal, like subjective relationship to it. Oh man. That's going to be a real definitive turning point in our podcast. That's literally how to define every (laughs) movie in my life. Um, so that's, and, but that's how we get closer to like shit on a movie for not meeting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I used to be that way too, for sure. Um, but that's how I, 
that's um, like the liter it's literary qualities. It's like it's um, desire to be more than um, a, a, a a plot vehicle um, is kind of what what gets me kind of closer to this to this movie. No. Um, whereas I think people that have problems with stuff like Bones and All and um, this movie and even stuff like like difficult, more difficult things like Happening. Um, I think Bones and All is more difficult than Happening, though. Sure, but they're both they're all, they're all movies that have no story. You know what I mean? It's just like these are people and here they are, and they're moving through their life. I think Salem Bar happens. is probably pretty difficult. It's like. Say no more. There's another one. At least there's a trial that has a beginning and an end. Is she guilty? But like, but like getting close to like why this is happening is mm. probably difficult. Are you using this as an example? No, I'm just turning it. <laughs> we're finishing up. Um, bring my printer back to its original position. It. Um, I think it's a fascinating movie, and I didn't see it coming. Because no, I um, um, I watched this on Saturday simply off of a lark because I was like, this is a big movie, I guess. I figure it's going to be fine. I figure it's going to be in the similar level of like, not I liked Lost Daughter, but I figure it's going to be something similar to Lost Daughter. Mm. We're saying very easy emotional things in a somewhat interesting way, but this is saying not easy anything in a weird way. But honest way, yeah, with a less histrionic way. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's not much comparing to this movie, like in in recent film memory, where a movie's just saying like a person is sad and has a kid, and we can only presume fucking kills himself. What does that mean? Or is gone or right. just disappears off the face of the earth well, soon the- afterwards? And why does he do it? Honestly, he was sad. The movie, I, and like literally, that's the answer. The movie gets sad. me closest to is Lynn Ramsey's Morvern Keller, yeah. um, where like Samantha Morton is just in a mood, and or not in a mood, but like her her view on the world is X, and we're not going to establish Y, but we are going to see what that means when X, Y, and Z things happen to her. Um. And I, Charlotte Wells has made this one movie. And so we can't say that she has an aesthetic that she's leaning on or that is she that she's developing. Films? She's done a bunch of short films, yeah. Um, whereas Lynn Ramsey had like a whole bunch of like aesthetic things that we could point to. And then going forward, um, a bunch of things that like are present in. God, I hope she is the weirdo who pops up in the best directing nominees. Lynn Ramsey? No, um. Charlotte, Charlotte Wells, yeah, that'd be good. I'll take I'll take either Charlotte Wells or um, Sarah Pauly. Oh, um, because I don't think I don't think women talking is successful, but I think it's interesting, and I think it's more interesting probably than like whatever else they would put I in. Think, I think women talking's problem is its cinematography. I think a lot of people are discrediting it for its blues and grays. Well, I think it's Hill the Guanatier um, score with its cinematography, like it aspires to do something very specific and it's just like ah you did you missed that yeah. like you don't get how terrence malick does stuff um like is aesthetically it, is it terrence malick oh my god yes that's enough with people standing on hay bales and like cameras just circling through them and that's the thing it's a movie that i really liked 
I, um, upon like its second viewing, I was like, this in, made an impact, but it's just too much, too much of that. The end is too long. It takes them too long to get on the road. There should be no tension. Um, I don't want it to turn into a thriller. Like, are they going to do it or aren't they going to do it? I don't want that from this movie. That's just not what this movie is supposed to be. Um, but again, it's, I, I give her credit for trying to make something like really difficult. There we are, Mario. There we are. Anything else? We're yet, no. We're That's, yet, I'm trying to like load up BFI's thing so we can do a promo to our next episode, but BFI is not working. 2022. Uh, we did it. Yeah. 2020, we, oh, my internet went down. That's the reason. Um, yeah, we did it. It was a weird year. It was a weird year. But good. Uh, but good we didn't stuff. didn't fall asleep during the middle of our top ten. You got, no. a little, you got a little sleepy during our number six. I did in the middle there, but like I got and energized. I, I called you out. I was like, you motherfucker. You fucking stop You're that right fucking now. waking up. <laughs> you fucking piece of shit. Um, all I needed to do was talk about After Sun. Well, yeah, that's, that's why I said like I'm going to talk about Banshee Manager, which is a solid number one. But a less exciting number one than After Sun. But it's not also a less exciting number one because we've been talking for like since we saw it about like, well, this movie is fucking great. Everyone's been talking about Banshees. You know what movie's really good? Banshees of Inishirin. It's pretty good. Yeah. Now we move into uh, the year of our Lord 2023. There's only one movie that matters to me. And the first, the only movie that really matters is Infinity Pool. Infinity Pool, which comes out in a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, but also, I think it's coming had, out wide, Mario. I, I, they have I a have poster for it up in North Haven. Do they really? Yeah, ne- right next to an Ant Man poster. Right next, no, and right next to an Ant Man like cardboard cutout of Kang's hand. Wait a minute, is it the same movie? Are they both going to come out at the same time, Mario? Like in, at, at once. I'm also looking forward to Creed Three. Oh, yeah. No, Just because of Jonathan Majors. I'm not, I'm not doing that. You don't want to see Jonathan Majors beat the shit out of Michael B. Jordan as Creed? No, I just want to watch uh, Jonathan Majors beat the shit out of Paul Rudd. I want to see Jonathan Majors beat the shit out of everybody. That's, that's fair. Jonathan Majors is the best. And I'm very much looking forward to Creed 3 and Jonathan Majors just eating shit. Rocky franchise as the clubber lang of, of whatever this new iteration of Rocky is. Well, the clubber, yeah, the clubber lang thing is like, he's, um, what, who's son is he supposed to be in this new one? Nobody's. Oh, he's just like, he's guy. a guy that like, he was friends with um, Adonis. And then they did a thing and, and, um, and Jonathan Major's character got sent to jail and Adonis did not. And so now he's out of jail and he's just like, oh, I want what you have. But it's very much like a Clipper Lang, like, hey, woman, you want to see real man? Love it. Love Creed 3. I thought he was was actually, I thought he was Rocky Lang's like child. No, that'd be, Um, that's too much. That'd be be a little too much. But no, we're going to have a twist in this podcast from here on out. Now you've done the best of 2022. We're going to review movies that are new that we want to talk about. Sporadically, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not movies that we feel like we have to talk about. I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't know what my number... My, if we do a 2023 um, best of the year list in this format, I have no idea what that was going to be because I'm not... The churn is not something I'm interested in anymore. Well, that's right. It felt bad this year. 
to kind of churn through movies that like I was that I ultimately like I'm going to appreciate St. Omer so much more in on is, February 7th when it comes out on, this on this demand. This is a nice like last 10 minutes of the podcast. What is a movie you felt like you had to churn through you didn't want to churn through? St. Omer for sure. I want I want some time. Yeah, too Leslie was like kind of no, like was no. That too Leslie was a movie I turned through. Like I want to go back to, but like it was a movie that you watched just for the sake of finishing out this best of twenty twenty two list. That ultimately wasn't worth it. That wasn't worth it. Yeah, like all the beauty and bloodshed is mine. I wish I didn't have to do that. I'm glad I watched it because I was excited for it based on like what everyone was saying about it, and then I like felt shitty about it but like i definitely needed to i definitely need to watch it and i don't think um getting more time with it would like change. finishing out top gun maverick was also that for me because that movie just was boring i think of a not easy answer though what i wanna, think blonde blonde was a little bit of a like a but blonde's a, been out forever yeah but like i didn't watch blonde when it first came yeah. out like i took a while i watched it but i was like not in the right mind frame for it um, I think I was not drunk, but I was just like a lit, pretty buzzed when I watched it. Like rewatching, it was kind of like another bit much. I don't know. The whale was kind of that for me too. The whale is just the whale. My problem with the whale is that it's objectively bad in a lot of ways, and I. So I don't even know if it's if it earns the right to like be considered more like because its script is not going to get better the more you watch Sadie's Sink Sadie's Sink is only going to get worse Um, what the fuck is her problem I mean I have no problem ending this podcast to Kate Bush enough I have no problem ending this podcast on not even Sadie's Sink her character what the hell were they thinking what were they thinking Mario she's like 19 she's a fucking sociopath why just because her mom drank and her dad left I don't know. I, I, I feel as though Darren Aronofsky was so disconnected from that movie. Like, it didn't feel it like felt, he actually... He's felt very disconnected from he that gave movie. gave a shit. But no. So we're not going to be doing the grind anymore. I um, almost feel like we should... If we do it, we just do a top 10, like, our favorite movies that we saw in 2023 and, like... See how we feel in a year. I like... I like... I like doing all this shit, though. Yeah, but I'm going to... I'm... I, I'm... I'm not. We'll see. We'll see how we'll, we'll, we'll see. See. I shouldn't even do anything else. I should cut after that. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, no. So the next time you'll talk to us, uh, like we said, we're going to be looking back at the Sign Sound list, right? Yeah, um, we're going to watch some stuff that we haven't seen before. Uh, Black Girl, I think, is the. First movie mm-hmm. we said we we're gonna talk about, and probably at that list. point, Infinity Pool. Uh, Black Girls on HBO Max, I believe. So mm, check that out. Yeah, and check out Infinity Pool, which looks fucking crazy. Yeah, that that I honestly think the next time I'm gonna be in theaters is March 9th. So. No, to see Bo is afraid. No, to see Scream Six. <laughs> you said. Oh, you said wait for the Friday. I'm not gonna do it. Are you gonna, gonna see, see Bo is afraid? Oh, the movie seems so bad, Mario. It does. Are you excited about anything this year? Infinity Pool. Um, Scream 6. Don't know why. 
That's it. You, you throw a uh, Maxine, I guess. Um, I guess just to round it out. Yeah, I, I don't even want to do a, a most anticipated of the year list. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, yet. No. Um, I don't know. This Kelly Reichardt has a new comedy out. Didn't Kelly Reichardt make a movie that came out randomly in 2022 as well? Or no? I think it played some festivals, but it didn't come out. Um, yeah, I don't know what a Kelly Reichardt comedy is supposed to look like. <laughs> we'll see where we are in a year. But we will be back. We'll review movies. They might not be new movies, so fucking deal with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, Andy. <laughs> but we'll review some movies from the Science Sound list. Because we'll, that's fun. And we'll drink for us. And-